Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, May the 13th, 2023. Certainly not unlucky for us. Uh, lucky people in San Francisco on a, on a beautiful Saturday uh, morning, uh, a spring morning, magnificent weather. Of course, when we talk about the weather in liberal coastal circles, it often comes with the moral caveat of the environment. But perhaps even on the environmental front, the news isn't quite as bad as some people fear and perhaps some people almost cherish. Uh, we've done a number of shows recently about why... On the climate front, things aren't quite as apocalyptic as some believe or want to believe. David Victor was on the show recently. He has a new book out, Fixing the Climate, Stretches for an Uncertain World. Uh, Bruce Usher uh, believes that we do indeed now have many of the technologies to confront our crisis. Uh, he's an investor. He has a new book out, Investing in the Era of Climate Change. Howard Walk, uh, somebody who spent a lot of time in Washington, D.C., a political operative, believes that America's entrepreneurial edge is what will help it fix its environmental crisis. He has a new book out, Launchpad Republic, America's entrepreneurial edge, particularly on the environmental front. We had Lucas Joper on the show recently, the former envir chief environmental officer, chief sustainability officer at Microsoft, who believes that both corporations and government have a positive role in confronting climate change. Uh, and Bob Keefe, who manages a, a, a group of American uh, corporations, uh, believes the same. Uh, he has a new book out, Climate Nomics. So maybe when it comes to the climate, American innovation, American technology, American business is beginning at least to address the crisis. Uh, my sense is that that's what our guest today, Stephen Cohen, uh, will argue. Um, he's at Columbia University, runs a major institute there. He's a much published author on environmental politics and technology. And he has a brand new book out, Environmentally Sustainable Growth, A Pragmatic Approach. He's joining us from Morningside Heights near Columbia University in uptown New York City. Stephen, how's the weather there? Not bad. A little cloudy today, but warm. Pleasant. So are you in keeping with the cheerfulness of, of, of those other writers and thinkers? I, I'm sure you're familiar with some of them. Uh, is, yeah. is, shall we say, the weather on the environmental front, is it beginning to improve? Yeah, I think we have it within our means to solve these problems. Uh, I think we've actually had a, a reasonably good history of working on environmental problems and improving them. And I think we need to have a little bit more confidence that the world's not coming to an end. I know you, um, you've given some speeches recently associated at Columbia University, associated with the publication of your new book, suggesting that some people seem to almost enjoy being apocalyptic. Is that true about a certain wing of the environmental movement? Well, I think it's true of politics in general that uh, we've monetized differences. Uh, so you can raise money by either saying that the evil environmentalists want to take away your SUVs 
or you can raise money saying the evil capitalists want to destroy your planet, when in fact, uh, probably neither of those things is really true. Tell me your own narrative. You've, you, you run this major institute at Columbia University. You're a much published writer, many books, many articles. Have you changed your opinion uh, since, I mean, you're, I, w- I wouldn't say you're an old man, but you're certainly not a young man anymore. Have you become yeah. more optimistic or perhaps more pragmatic when it comes to um, fixing our environmental crisis? Well, I'd say that my experience is that I've always been pretty pragmatic. You know, if you think about how we solved, uh, how we moved to solve air and water pollution in America uh, and toxic waste, it was always consensus politics making deals. Uh, I mean, even a president as conservative as Ronald Reagan knew that uh, Californians cared about smog and something had to be done about it. Uh, in, the, in the late 1960s and 1970s, from downtown L.A., you couldn't see the mountains. Uh, and today you certainly can. So I think the, the point is that these are consensus issues. Uh, people, in the way I always put it, everybody likes to breathe. You kind of get used to it. And so I think that is really been part of what's been going on. What's been different is this uh, sort of existential threat language around climate change, uh, the idea that somehow the world's going to come to an end, that this problem is so global and so tremendous, we won't be able to address it. And nothing in my experience says that we can't address these problems. So what, if it's not an existential crisis, what are the problems? Give me your your analysis of where we are when it comes to global warming and to what some people see as an, an existential crisis, others like yourself, as an issue which we can overcome, we can deal with? Well, the biggest problem with climate change is it was very different. It is very different than other environmental issues. So you can see smog, you can smell toxics, you can, you know, you can taste the water if it's not clean. Uh, climate change is created everywhere, and a lot of its impact in the, was modeled to take place in the future. So we had models in the 1990s and the early 2000s saying, by 2020, this is going to happen. And guess what? It's all happening. So I think the, the sort of felt experience of climate change was very different than other environmental problems. It made it harder to address. But in fact, uh, since 2007, uh, the Supreme Court in the United States decided that greenhouse gases was a pollutant that needed to be regulated under the Clean Air Act which was passed in 1970. And uh, now, finally, last week, uh, some regulations that I think will stand up in court were finally issued. What about the issue, though, Stephen, of global warming? That's not something that um, is going away. And, and you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of People are so passionate on this front, and, and, and everyone comes to it with different agendas well, it, and language and arguments. But yeah, I, I know there are people who, who will hear you and say, well, Global warming is is not changing. The world is heating up. Uh, Parts of the world are going to be uninhabitable in 20 or 30 years. How would you respond to that analysis? Well, it is heating up. And it's a problem that we should have started addressing a while ago. Uh, But I think we are beginning to see that mobilization, uh, the decarbonization of uh, the the economies of the West and the development has begun. The problem is people think that these changes happen instantly. Now, if you did try to change uh, the climate issue instantly, let's say you shut down the world economy, what would that give you? It would give you a worldwide depression. It would result in political instability and 
uh, terrorism. And, you know, you can trade this off. Would you rather have a dirty bomb in Times Square or would you rather have some sea level rise in Miami Beach? Well, I'll take the sea level rise. So the I'm not sure how those are connected. Why? 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 Why is that the choice? A well, dirty bomb in Times Square or the sea level rise? OK, so if you reduced the world economy and if people didn't feel they could maintain their standard of living and people in the developing world gave up hope, that would put incredible political pressure on regimes all over the world. Uh, we see what happens when the economy hiccups in, in uh, the United States uh, can often result in the change of a presidency. So imagine that you, some, for some reason, you decided to shut down the world economy or reduce the growth of the world economy. That would result in political instability. That political instability, given the technology of destruction that's available all over the world, would result in massive, massive civil unrest. So we, we are playing a very tricky game right now. We're on a merry-go-round where we have to keep the economy going. And the way that we have to do that is we have to develop a high-throughput economy that increases people's wealth without destroying the planet. We really have no choice but to do that. And my argument in the book is that this is, we are at the beginning of that transition right now. Uh, we are probably, you know, five to 10 years into a transition that's going to take 30 to 40 years to complete. I think that's the point that people need to understand. This is not an overnight uh, fix. And it does mean that in the course of the next generation, the planet will continue to get warmer. Stephen, there'll be some people who argue we do have an alternative. We've had a number of the deep growth school of thinkers and writers on, on, on the show, people like the British academic Tim Jackson. What would you say to them if, if they argued that the problem is capitalism, that you can't fix the environment and have capitalism at the same time, and we need to figure out a, a better, a fairer, a more sustainable economic system? Well, you know, uh, theoretically, maybe that's true, but uh, let's deal with the political world that we live in. Uh, the fact is that if we're going to we're going to make these changes under a capitalist system and capitalism has already shown the dynamism and the ability to innovate technologically uh, that can solve problems. I mean, the fact is that people today live a lot better than people lived a century ago. All these technologies have made our lives easier, more pleasant, more interesting, more exciting. And nobody's about to give this up. And most of the problems that we've created uh, environmentally, the ones that we fixed, we fixed through the development of new technologies, whether it was catalytic converters uh, on cars or stack scrubbers, uh, and now renewable energy and electric vehicles. We're able to solve these problems by applying technology to solve the problems that are caused by technology. But what I'm saying is it's a merry-go-round we're not going to get off of. And uh, the people who benefit from this economy, which is the majority of the people in the world, are not going to give it up. Uh, and so this is part of the problem with some of environmental politics that gets wrapped up in symbolism and idealistic ideas that have no basis in political reality or the self-interest that's always ruled the world. So, you know, I don't even understand the point of having those kinds of discussions. It's sort of like you know, a billionaire flies his own plane to the climate conference and people say, shame on you. I'd rather have the billionaire there. I want his political support for and his capital for the new technologies that we need. 
I take your point. I do want to get to the, the practice of sustainability. But there are political differences, Stephen, on there. I take your point again on the, the billionaire who flies his, his or her plane to the climate conference. But that's better than not flying their plane to the climate conference. And aren't there huge differences, say, between the, the two last American presidents when it comes to politics, Trump and Biden? Oh, uh, the politics does matter. Oh, absolutely. No, I think, but I, I think at the same time, and this is the advantage of, of the U.S. political system, it's a federal system. So while Trump was moving backwards, California and New York and other states were able to move forward. And more interestingly, corporations have moved forward. I mean, the company that is adopting solar power fastest in the United States is Walmart. And they're not doing it because of some idealistic love of the environment. They're doing it because it's reducing their energy costs. And they have a lot of flat roofs that they can put solar arrays on. So let's get to the book. Uh, you're, you're not a man of theory. You're a man of practice. Um, and you're interested in the, the practicality of uh, environment, environmentally sustainable growth. Do we begin this by thinking about technology or thinking about business or are they inseparable? I, I think that they're connected to each other. I mean, if you think about uh, how economic life has changed over the last century, it's all been through the development of new technologies that then become monetized. So, uh, and in fact, you know, would Las Vegas or Phoenix be possible if we hadn't invented air conditioning? Uh, so you think about the use of the development of refrigeration technologies, uh, later on the World Wide Web, the internet, uh, you know, cheap uh, telecommunications, all of this has transformed the way that we live and businesses uh, make money off of that. And new businesses have evolved and fortunes have been made because of the development of new technologies. You look at some of the largest companies in the world and they become large because they figured out ways of monetizing new inventions. Uh, you look at Tesla, Google, Apple, Microsoft, I mean, the list goes on. And so it's pretty obvious that these that technology is what's fueling uh, most economic growth and that in order for us to clean up the environment, we've got to wed those goals to the goals of making money. Give me uh, one or two technologies which you see of, be, as, of, of being critical in terms of being developed recently, of addressing the crisis, and then areas where we still need new technology, where we don't have fixes. Well, I, I mean, I think that the, the development of the smart grid and microgrid is one invention, uh, although we're still working on it. I particularly think battery technologies advanced dramatically. Solar cells have gotten a lot cheaper and a lot more efficient than they were, you know, 20 years ago. And, and these technologies continue to evolve. And I, I think, you know, people sometimes don't fully understand how much time and effort and resource is going into these technologies. And I, I often point to, you know, you know the, the development of computers. When I was in graduate school, the, my computer was the size of my dining room. Uh, it was run by guys with white coats and it had far less computing power than my uh, smartphone has. So, you know, I've seen these technological changes. And so the idea that somehow well, we're not going to be able to invent our way out of this. I mean, think about this. Uh, what if uh, the solar array uh, that you needed for your home could fit in your windows? And there are now ways of doing that. 
and the battery was the size of your laptop, and the whole thing cost you $500, and you could decouple from the grid. Now, is that, that technology is coming. It's not unimaginable in any sense. And if you think about how we've gone from you know, broadcast television to cable TV uh, to uh, streaming video to wireless internet, all of these kinds of things, all of these technologies keep advancing. And that's uh, in something that is not really central to you know, our existence. Energy is central. I mean, there are, our entire economy is fueled literally by it. And so I think the, that energy is the tech. We need new energy technologies. We're getting them. And that's part of what gives me confidence that we're going to address the climate issue. So how do we pick the winners and losers on this new energy technology? I know you're ambivalent, for example, about um, nuclear energy. How do we determine which kinds of energy we should select and invest in and champion as opposed to those perhaps like nuclear that we should leave behind? Well, I, I think it's it's a question of what's most convenient, what works the best, and what's least expensive. Now, the problem with nuclear is, unfortunately, we went down the wrong path uh, in the 1950s by trying, you know, we had this thing in the United States called Atoms for Peace. We tried to, to put fission power to use for generating electricity. The only problem with it is that uh, it causes waste uh, and you have the potential for meltdowns and it's the same material that can, you can make bombs out of. Had we gone down another technological path, uh, had we perfected fusion, for example, uh, we might be talking about nuclear or something realistic. But if you think about all of the capital that's required uh, to create a functioning nuclear power plant, and if you think about what's going on in Ukraine now where you know the entire ecosystem of a huge part of Europe is threatened by warfare, it tells you that technology is not the right one for right now. Uh, 50, 100 years from now, uh, you know, we may in fact be developing a low cost form of nuclear power that's much safer than what we have today. So in the meantime, I think we need to focus pretty much on wind, geothermal and solar and also energy efficiency measures like heat pumps and things of that sort that can get much more out of uh, our use of energy. And also the use of uh, grids and, and being the smart grid, a lot of the electricity that gets generated never gets used. And so if we were to only put on the grid the electricity we needed and we could project that much better, uh, we could actually then have a more efficient energy system. But I think a lot of these things are, are coming right now and we'll be seeing in the next decade. Well, presumably on that energy front, uh, as networking of one kind or other becomes more ubiquitous there are ways of fixing that what about this relationship between the market and government i know you have strong feelings again on the role of government regulation uh, you believe that it has a role uh, perhaps in regulating greenwashing what should and what shouldn't governments do in terms of encouraging environmentally sustainable growth, but what should we be wary of governments becoming perhaps over-involved in? Well, you, you don't want government to be, you know, sort of dictating to the private sector uh, how to, uh, you know, what to invent and how to invent things, but government tends not to do that. Uh, what you want government for is to create, uh, a con you know, a rules of the game. It's sort of like, you know, the analogy I often use is traffic Latin, which increasingly people aren't paying attention to. But still, you know, you wouldn't want to have 
a city without traffic lights. You want to have some rules of the road. So for environment, for example, uh, you know, if you run a chemical plant, you should be able to keep those chemicals from leaching out into the, uh, to the environment. There should be laws to prevent you from polluting. If you are, uh, so on the negative side, you want uh, to make sure that you've got rules that uh, prevent people from polluting. That's one side. In terms of the transition to a renewable resource-based economy there, uh, largely what you want is infrastructure. Uh, and you want, you want to help attract capital, private capital, uh, into the game. And that's actually what uh, the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Act are starting to do. I mean, think about the billions of dollars that all the auto companies are putting into electric vehicles. They're doing that because they see the regulatory requirements coming to get rid of the internal combustion engine. I think that uh, was a really good thing to do, particularly since the electric vehicle uh, is a technologically superior product. So, so pushing industry toward something that they're already doing, but happen, have it happen faster is one of the roles of government. And in, with something like motor vehicles, you know, Henry Ford may have invented the Model T in mass production, but he didn't build any roads. The government had to build the roads. So you have to have a partnership between the public and the private sector in order for the private goods to uh, actually get to the market and be usable. You teach at Columbia, uh, Stephen, so you're good at giving grades. How would you grade the Biden administration? You talked about their policies. It seems to me, at least, as if they're investing significant amount of financial and political capital in the issue. Is that fair? And, and are they doing a good job? Yeah, I think given the political environment we're in, they're doing a very good job. And, and I think that, that what's, you know, we're in such a partisan, polarized political environment. Uh, it's tough to get anything done. It's amazing they got those things done at all. But I think that one of the things that uh, especially the sort of MAGA Republicans don't understand is the corporations want this. Uh, you know, uh, in uh, 10 years ago, 10% of the Standard & Poor top 500 companies did sustainability reports every year. Last year, it was 92%. Uh, organizations are recognizing that they that their investors care about uh, environmental risk uh, and and they want to know whether or not uh, the company is paying attention to those kinds of issues. And so in, in the case of Biden, I think uh, he's in tune with that. And I think his people are in tune with it. And I, and I say, given the environment we're in, they've done a, a very good job. Uh, Br Bruce Usher in particular um is not a big fan, I think, of some of the, the international bureaucratic initiatives associated with the UN. Uh, Greta Thunberg, of course, famously talks about the blah, blah of some of these events. What's your take on the international community, given particularly the way in which the environment, obviously the issues um, aren't nation state issues they're global issues um, do we need organizations like the united nations or are they just uh, a waste of time and money well I, I think they have a role to play but we don't have a global government uh, we still have national sovereignty and uh, bruce is a colleague of mine here at the earth institute so uh, i i tend to agree with him but i i think uh the role of these international conferences like the ipcc and the, uh, and the UN in general, is first, uh, they were very good at building uh, consensus 
among scientists. So those reports uh, had a value, have a value. Um, you know, I think perhaps at this point, uh, it's diminishing returns. I think the conferences are silly. Uh, they're basically cocktail parties and industry trade conferences now. Uh, but they do raise consciousness. They raise awareness of the issues. And I think in that, it's sort of like Earth Day, you know. Earth Day starts with them burying a car in Santa Barbara. Okay, you know, symbolic gesture. Uh, but every year, uh, it focuses people's attention for a day or for a week on environmental issues. I think that's useful, but I wouldn't overstate it. I, I think that having people talk to each other and exchange ideas is a good thing. Uh, but the expectation that somehow we're going to follow, that nation states are going to follow the dictates uh, or agreements of, uh, uh, that are set internationally, the only way they'll do that if it's in their self-interest. Uh, and then uh, in, in the case of issues like climate, uh, it's not in everybody's self-interest because we're all at different stages of economic development. So I think their, uh, their, uh, their usefulness is limited, but I wouldn't say that they're useless. I'd say they have a role to play. I mentioned Greta Thunberg, of course, who's become one of the youthful symbols of the anger about bureaucracy and the lack of policy on this issue. You teach at the university, so you obviously have a lot of, uh, a lot of experience with young people. You've written about the generational and cultural change involved with environmental sustainability. Has something changed, Stephen? I've had a number of people on the show suggesting that young people get this crisis better than old guys like you and I. Um, is there a, a generational quality to the issue? And are you confident and comfortable about leaving the next generation with these issues? I, I think there is a change because they've grown up with this. Um, but I think that uh, many of us who are older have seen with our own eyes uh, both deterioration of environment, but also the ability uh, to improve and to improve environmental quality. So I think that, uh, and, and if you look at the polling data, there's no question that younger people are more concerned about these issues than older people, regardless of their political ideology. I think what worries me a little bit is this idea that somehow uh, these issues uh, can't be addressed and that the world's coming to an end. Uh, you know, Malthus saw, thought that within 100 years of his paper that we would all be starving to death, but he didn't understand that agricultural technology was, was going to improve. Well, energy technology and waste management technology are improving dramatically on a, you know, we yeah, you've written extensively on uh, solid waste technology, which is an interesting area. Right. You know, I, in fact, there was something on the network news the other night about the use of artificial intelligence and robotics to uh, mine resources from the waste stream. At some point in the near future, it's, a, it's a, gonna come less expensive to mine our garbage than to mine the planet. And I think when that starts to happen, again, the market is what's gonna determine this. If I can buy copper cheaper from New York City's Department of Sanitation than mining it for, you know, from a hill in Chile, then that's where I'm gonna get it from. So I, I think that those issues uh, you know, are important. And getting back to the role of government, it's government that has to build that infrastructure. But uh, here in New York, we're spending $2 billion a year to get rid of our garbage. So there's a little bit of money to play with there if we can come up with a, with a better solution. Two quick more questions, Stephen. I don't want to keep you from lovely spring afternoon in New York. Um, 
what happens if we don't get this right? I mean, you are defiantly optimistic, which I think is refreshing. <laughs> but what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? There's nothing inevitable about this, is there? No, uh, there isn't, except, again, if you look at sort of the history of the development and diffusion of new technologies, uh, you know, you can be pretty optimistic uh, based on what's happened so far. And what keeps me up is the use of, of weapons of mass destruction, obviously. And uh, one, one point that makes me a little bit more confident is that uh, we've only used nuclear bomb twice. We've got lots of crazy people who possess them and they haven't used it. So we may, in fact, have uh, somewhere in our consciousness something that we uh, place a taboo on. So I worry about technologies that uh, are out of control. I mean, people think about artificial intelligence that way uh, right now. But I think if we look at the history, uh, we're able to take control of technologies pretty effectively. And the ones that scare us the most, we put the most controls on. But that doesn't mean that somebody somewhere won't make a mistake. And finally, Stephen, a lot of people are going to be watching this, listening to this and thinking, this is encouraging, this is good news, but how can we, how can we compound that good news? We may not be in government, we may not have environmental startups, we may not be technologists. What should ordinary people do, in, perhaps in terms of changing their eating habits, their driving habits, uh, their use of energy habits? What would you encourage people? folks who, who can't spend all their money or time on this, what would you encourage them to do to, to, um, to, to vindicate your optimism? I'd say there's two things. One is uh, political, which is to look for areas where we agree with, with each other. Uh, one of the points I make in the book is the largest environmental organization in the United States is the National Wildlife Federation. Most of the members are hunters and anglers, and yet they've made... Uh, common purpose with urban environmentalists who are probably horrified by the idea of eating meat or wearing fur. But so, so one thing is to look for places where we can agree. Uh, everybody wants healthy water, clean air, and to make sure that they're not eating poison or ingesting it. So we have some things in common to build agreement on. And the second part of this is to be thinking about these issues. In other words, when you consume or when you buy something, pay attention uh, to that issue. People are. I mean, it's really fascinating to watch uh, the degree to which consumer behavior is now affected by environmental considerations.